The coronavirus clearly has turned our world upside down. All the cancellations, the, the concerns, even going out to the grocery store, the love we have for those who are compromised, that face dire consequences, the possibility of those. News channels, even the sports radio, so many, everywhere you turn, it seems everybody's talking about the coronavirus. We can't get away from it. You might even go to sleep at night peacefully, but wake up in the middle of the night and just be gripped by the concern, again, of the virus. At least I'm speaking about myself. I have tremendous concern for my family, especially for my wife who has cancer. Concern for the church and those in the, who are compromised in the church. Concerned about the welfare of the church. I have to admit, I've been pretty shaken by this. But the verse that really helped me and helped Karen a lot comes from John 16, and it says, Jesus says to his disciples, shortly before he's going to be arrested, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As we read these words, we realize that the disciples' world was turned upside down. The Jesus they loved, they followed, they invested their lives in was about to be arrested, tortured, and crucified. It would appear that he was defeated, defeated by the religious enemies, by the Roman government, even by the God of this world, the satanic forces. But Jesus says, I'm not defeated. You can have peace. The, the world has tribulation around you, but you can have peace because I have overcome the world. If Jesus offers that peace in a time of the, the most brutal moment in history itself, he certainly can offer us peace today. Let's pray. Our Father, lead us today to see ourselves, to see our hearts, to settle ourselves in our relationship with you so that we would live and walk in you and have this peace that you speak of and be able to live in that peace in the midst of turmoil that we might also be a testimony for you and your power as the overcomer of everything. Amen. The path to peace begins with an assurance of our relationship with God. Peace is going to come when we abide in Christ moment by moment. But it begins by having a relationship with God. That's called, in this passage we're going to see that's spoken of as being in the kingdom of God. It's also going to be spoken about as eternal life. Most of you who are listening today believe that you already have this relationship with God. 
And that probably is the case. And if it is the case, I hope that you will find not only the assurance, but a peace in that relationship because your eternity is settled. And there is nothing that can take that from you. At the same time, I hope you learn from this passage that there are many who do think they have this relationship who do not. And that this passage can help you to minister to them. Help that you give them Christ's words and Christ's perspective. But there may also be those listening who, who think they have this relationship or maybe realize they don't have this relationship. Please listen very carefully because Christ is showing us the way to the kingdom of God. In this passage, it speaks about a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one that just about everyone thought was surely in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. So let's look at this man. We begin in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, look at these, these two verses very carefully. What do you see about Nicodemus? What can you tell us about Nicodemus? Well, first of all, it says he's Jewish. Now, at that time, the Jews, they're the chosen people. If you had a religion, the only right religion was Judaism. And we see that Nicodemus was a Jew. But he was much more than that. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the strictest of all the religions within Judaism or uh, parties within Judaism. They were meticulous in knowing God's law, following God's law, and even to the extent of adding to God's law to make sure they, they followed it. They would put most of uh, the Christians today to shame as to how passionate they were for God, how obedient they were to God, and how well they knew the scriptures. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was also a ruler of the Jews. This is a reference to the Sanhedrin of 70 men led by the chief priests who were like the Supreme Court of the day. These were men esteemed. Certainly everyone who was a member of the Sanhedrin must have been in the kingdom of God. And then we see that he comes to Jesus by night. And I think this shows us his sincerity. Some look at that word night and they say, well, that's when the, uh, the religious people did their studies. That's when they, they tried to grow in their faith. And could be that's what he was doing. He was coming to Jesus at night because this was a part of his, his understanding of God. It could be that he came at night because he was fearful during the daytime because the other Pharisees did not look upon Jesus with favor. In fact, they hated his ministry and they saw him as a blasphemer. If that's the case, it still shows 
actually the courage of Nicodemus. Because even though he faced those threats, he still went to seek out Jesus. He was sincere in pursuing a spiritual path, even with Jesus. And so he says, we know you're a teacher come from God. So he even has a right perspective about Jesus himself. Jesus, you are from God. Because I know you've done signs pointing to the fact that you are God's man. So if you go down the checklist, who belongs in the kingdom, you'd say, well, you've got to have the right religion. Nicodemus did. You have to be very religious. Nicodemus was. You have to be so respected that everyone around you would say, certainly he's in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was. Sincerity? Nicodemus was sincere. Believe that Jesus came from God? It's right there. Certainly, he was in the kingdom of God. As one commentator noted about the time, he said, predominant religious thought in Jesus' day affirmed that all Jews would be admitted to the kingdom, except for those who were guilty of deliberate apostasy or extraordinary wickedness. So everyone would have thought, certainly, Nicodemus was in the kingdom of God, except Jesus. That word, at night, is regularly used by John in a spiritual sense, in spiritual darkness. While everyone would look at Nicodemus as though he was in the light, Jesus knew he was in the darkness. And so he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you are not in the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And this should lead each one of us to asking ourselves the question, have we been dependent upon our religion or being in the right church or being a good person, uh, being a philanthropist? Those do not bring us into the kingdom. Only a new birth. And Jesus knows this about Nicodemus because he understands Nicodemus completely. Look at the last verse in chapter 2. It says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them who seemed to believe because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And then the next words are, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So John is clearly saying to us, it doesn't matter what everyone else thinks about Nicodemus. He was the cream of the crop in religious circles. Jesus looks through all of that and he sees the man. He knows what's inside him. I know this is difficult for us to, to accept sometimes. We look around and we see very good people. We see people who are spiritual. We see people who certainly in our minds deserve 
to be in relationship with God. And yet, this passage says, unless you're born again, you're not. And that's because our perspective is so limited. Jesus's is not. He knows what's in man. He knows what's in woman. He knows what's in each one of us. And this is what he sees. And I, I read from Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about Christians, but what they were, what God saw in them before they came to believe in Christ. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the power, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When I look around, I say, yes, those people, these people, they should be in. But God sees what we don't see. He sees how we've gone our own way, how we've pushed God off the throne of our lives. We follow our passions rather than Christ. But there's hope because he offers a new birth. Though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he makes us alive. And so he offers that to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That means if he is born again, he becomes a part of that kingdom. And so Nicodemus, first of all, seems confused, or he may be pushing back at Jesus, saying that doesn't make sense. But in any case, we read in verse 4, Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which born of the flesh is the flesh. That which is born of the spirit is the spirit. So Nicodemus is, again, possibly confused here, and he's hearing second birth. How can a person be born a second time? Uh, can he go into his mother's womb? And, of course, the answer is no. And Jesus clarifies and says, I am speaking about a spiritual birth. First, he says, you have to be born by water and the spirit. And I know this has confused some people because they look at that water and they say, what do you mean by the water? And some will say, well, it's baptism, that you have to be baptized and then born by the Spirit. But that doesn't really fit the context of the entire book because John never speaks about a believer's baptism, or the need to be baptized. It could be that he's referencing Ezekiel 36 which says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And so 
Jesus may well be speaking about this new birth, this new heart, but it's the first step is to be cleansed, cleansed by God of our sin. The reference to the water could also be the reference to the spirit itself, and he's using two words, water and spirit, to say the same thing. And that's because John himself uses this term, water, as picturing the spirit, the life that the spirit gives throughout the, his book. In any case, it's very clear that spiritual birth comes from the Spirit of God. The first birth, that which is flesh. The second birth comes from the Spirit, that which is spirit. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So it still leaves us with the question of, okay, I really still don't understand it. You're telling me that the birth comes from the Spirit of God. It's a new birth. Uh, how do we know we have it? How, how does it appear? How does it show itself? And so Jesus says, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is using the picture of the wind. We, we don't see the wind. We don't see it coming. We don't see it going, not the wind itself, but we know it is here because we can hear the sound of it. Or we can see the effects of it in the trees. Or we can feel it on ourselves, but we never ever see it but we see the results of it. And I think that's what Jesus is saying about this new birth, is we're, we're not going to see the Spirit of God come and light upon a person. We're not going to see any physical manifestation of the Spirit happening, but we will be able to see the impact and the results of the Spirit's work in a person's life. He changes our lives. He brings us into a relationship with him. The Spirit often gives us that sense of God himself as our Father. He changes our value system. He changes the way we see things and what we pursue. The effects are in our lives. The essence of Christianity is not moralism or keeping the Ten Commandments or being kind to everybody, holding the correct belief system or worshiping and obeying God. It's the rebirth by the Spirit of God which will lead us into all of these things. It's not a work that we can do. It's the work that God does in us. So... It's hard to understand how it happens. We can see the results, but is there anything we do to make it happen, even though it's a work of God? And that's what Nicodemus is saying. How can these things be, he says in verse 9. In other words, he's saying, how does it work? I mean, do I just sit there and wait for the Spirit to blow on me? Do I have to adopt a new system of beliefs? 
Do I pledge an allegiance to Jesus? Uh, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus doesn't immediately answer that question. In fact, as, as I go through this passage to help me understand it, I, I'll put brackets around verses 10 through 13. Because Jesus speaks an aside to, to Nicodemus before he answers Jesus Nicodemus' question in verses 14 and 15. And the aside is, he says, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the, he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Basically, he's calling Nicodemus out. He's saying, Nicodemus, you seem very confused about what I'm saying. Are you a teacher of the Jews and you don't understand what I'm talking about because it's in the Old Testament? I just cited some of it in Ezekiel 36. You should know what I'm talking about. But instead, you've accepted the, the teaching of the day. And when you accept the teaching of the day, you don't accept what we're saying. And the we could be John the Baptist and Jesus or Jesus and his disciples. But in any case, it's Jesus has his teaching and the religious leaders had their teaching. But they haven't accepted Jesus's. And he's not going to accept Jesus's teaching unless he understands who Jesus is. And that's why Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. We have a similar situation today. There are a lot of people who pontificate about spiritual things. And what we hear regularly today is that those people who believe Jesus is the only way to God maybe they're mean-spirited because they're excluding everybody else and so people pontificate and say as long as you're spiritual you're in as long as you're a good person you're in as long as you care about others you're in as long as you're sincere you're in that's what we say Jesus says I am the way, the truth, and the life. He comes from heaven. If we pontificate about spiritual things as though we know, let's realize we didn't come from heaven. Jesus did. His teaching is hard, but it is true. And so now Jesus moves in verses 14 to 15 to answer Nicodemus's question. How can these things be? What, what has to happen? What, what must I do? And Jesus answers, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him 
may have eternal life. See, Jesus goes back to an Old Testament story. And in that story, the people of Israel were rebelling against God. They were complaining. They were trying to push God out of the way. And so God judged them, and he sent serpents. He sent snakes to bite them. And they were poisonous, and the people would die. And so then they cried out in repentance to God, save us, save us. So God told Moses to put up a pole and to put a bronze serpent on that pole and to lift it up. And if people came and looked at that pole with the serpent, they would be healed. They would live. Nicodemus is using that a picture of Jesus Christ. He says, as the serpent is lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. He will be crucified. That whoever believes in him will live. So the parallel is this. In the Old Testament, people sinned. The penalty for sin was death. The solution was to look at a serpent on a pole. Why a serpent? Because the serpent is what was killing them. And so when we look in the New Testament, we will see that every one of us is bitten by sin. And we fall under the judgment of God, but we can be saved. Because Jesus is lifted up, and on him, just as that serpent represents the sin that bites us, that sin was placed on Jesus Christ. When we believe in him, if we go back to the parallel, what did it mean? What does it mean to believe? We see it in the picture. The Jewish people had to realize they were dying because they were bitten. And they looked to that serpent with the belief that that look would save them. And so, too, for us, we need to realize our sin. We're under the judgment of God, but we look to the cross knowing that that is what saves our sins. Nothing we do but what Christ has done for us. Believe in Christ means to trust him for our salvation, not ourselves. And we can confirm that in another story, a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. It speaks about a, a Pharisee who goes up to pray alongside a tax collector. And the Pharisee, as you'll see, he prays all about his own personal confidence in his religious life. He says, thank you, God, I didn't, you didn't make me like others. And, and look at what I do for you. You know, I pray regularly, I fast, uh, I tithe, and he could go through a litany of things where he keeps saying, I, I, I. And we're seeing that his trust for his eternal life is himself. And just like Nicodemus, Jesus would say, no, you need to be born again. But we have a picture of faith 
and the tax collector. He knows he's separated from God. He can't even look up. Look at God. He drops his head and he says, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, you know which man went down justified? The one in right relationship. Not the big religious person who trusted in himself, but the tax collector, the despised tax collector, who said, I offer nothing, I'm a sinner, but I trust your mercy. And the word for mercy there is propitiation. It means more than mercy. It means, God, I appeal to you that your justice would be satisfied because I can't satisfy your justice. It is looking to the cross of Jesus Christ because it is Christ who paid for our sins, satisfied God's justice. Where do you stand today? If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, rejoice in that. You have a relationship with him that can give you peace in the greatest storms of life because there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not trials or tribulations or life or death or powers or principalities, nothing. Find peace in your relationship with Christ. Stay close to him. If you've understood today that you've been trusting yourself, either your good works or your, your religious deeds, your church attendance, your family upbringing, and you realize today that you are like Nicodemus. You think you're in. Everybody else thinks you're in. But now you realize you're not. You can place your trust in Jesus Christ this morning. Simply do what the tax collector did. Look at your life and realize your sin has separated you from a just and holy God. But the good news is Jesus Christ took that sin. You can look to him, you can look to that cross and hear him saying, it is finished, I forgive you. And you place your trust in Jesus Christ, not yourself for your salvation. If you would like to do that, I'm going to offer a prayer that you might pray to God. If it's truly your heart that you come into the kingdom of God this morning, you're given eternal life. So if my words reflect your heart, pray them. Our God, I'm not what I thought I was. I am riddled with sin. I have gone my own way. I've pursued life outside of you. I've put my hopes in everything but you. But I realize now that Jesus Christ took my sin took it all, past, present, 
even the future sins. He, he died for those and he paid the penalty so that I don't have to pay that penalty. I put my trust in Christ and what he's done for me and not in anything I do for myself. I believe in Jesus Christ. Thank you that through your word, I know that you give me new life and eternal life. In Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. If you prayed that sincerely, I ask that you contact us, Westgate Church, or Westgate Church, um, westgate-church.org, and we'd love to come alongside you to help you to, to grow in your faith in Christ. For those who already have that faith, realize you have a message that is not from this world, but has come from heaven itself. A message to give to everyone, you know. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, for us. May your Spirit bring that home to give us peace to give us you and to give us the message that can bring peace to everyone. Amen.